Spirit of God, bring these words home to our hearts and open our hearts up to your presence and what you have for us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, for the past several weeks, we have been uh, taking kind of a deep dive into what is the most familiar part of the New Testament when it comes to telling the story of the birth of Jesus. And the reason we're doing that is because there are so many ways that, uh, because the story is so familiar to us, we've heard it so many times, that uh, we can kind of start hearing them and check out and then pick up again after the words are done and not really even hear them. And it's important uh, that we investigate these passages, I think, because if what they tell us about is true, then that means that this is one of the most important events that has ever happened in human history. And if what they tell us about is false, well, we have a whole uh, world religion that is based on the, the truth that they claim, and it would be important that we know that too. So we've been asking a number of different questions of this Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20 passage. And this morning, the question that we're using to open it up is the question, where? There are all kinds of place and location words that we find in Luke chapter 2. So which of those should we focus in on this morning? Well, the obvious place to zoom in is on the little town of Bethlehem, where after a four or five day long, 90 mile journey from Nazareth to this little town, Mary and Joseph uh, find themselves in the midst of the action that occupies the majority of this chapter. The census, the failure to find a room, the birth of Jesus, the appearance of the angels, and the, the visit of the shepherds to Mary and Joseph. But I actually don't think Bethlehem is the most significant place that's mentioned in this passage. I think that honor goes to two places that are mentioned a few verses later when the angelic host surrounds the shepherds. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared before the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Luke tells us that in the broadest view, this is the story of something that happens not just in a town called Bethlehem, but at the pinpoint intersection between two vast realms, heaven and earth. Maps are always helpful in helping us find the relationship between different places. So I think one simple way to map out this passage is like this. In a moment, at the moment of Christ's birth, heaven and earth touch. I think it's important to point out that in biblical times, there were two different overlapping ways of thinking about these two realms of heaven and earth. One meaning of heaven is just whatever is over your head, the heavens, the sky, the clouds, the sky, the, the uh, sun, the stars, as opposed to the earth, the, this physical planet that surrounds us here below the ground, the fields, the mountains, the seas. That's the meaning of the word pair when we find it in the very first uh, passage in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all of physical reality, God 
created out of nothing. But there was another way to think about these two realms, one that had more to do with whose domain was whose, which was a, a way of thinking about heaven and earth more from a faith perspective than from a sense and physical perspective. It was the distinction between heaven, which is the invisible realm where God lives and rules surrounded by his angels, and earth, which is the visible realm where humanity lives. And that's the sense that's captured in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, which says, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. When the angels say glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests, they are talking in terms of this second understanding, speaking of the domain of God and the domain of humanity. So according to these angels, a baby is born in Bethlehem. And there are two profound results. In the spiritual realm, glory comes. God is praised and honored and extolled and magnified. And in the human realm, peace comes. God's purposes will begin to prevail in the lives of at least some. Those whose hearts are consistent with the will and the pleasure of God will flourish and find fulfillment and peace. Glory comes to God in heaven and peace comes to humanity on earth. Why? Because a child is born. Why? Because this child is like no other child. Every other birth that has ever happened or ever will happen is a birth into the earthly realm of an earthly being. But the birth of Jesus is the birth into the earthly realm of a heavenly being. Heaven comes to earth. In that pair of words, we really sum up the essential claim of the Christian faith, don't we? Heaven comes to earth. We were made, you and I, as human beings, for a relationship with God, and that's how things began. God walked on earth. Heaven and earth were a single realm. But then we broke our relationship with God. We mutinied against our creator. We pushed God off the throne and we took his place. And as a consequence, heaven and earth were torn apart and they were separated from one another. The realm of God now separated from the realm of humanity. And every world religion is an effort in some way to close that gap between the realm of humanity and the realm of God. But then, in an utter, utterly unexpected move, God closed that gap from his side. And heaven came to earth, the highest descended to the lowest. And that is the central claim of, historical claim of the Christian faith. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. His name answers the deepest where question that we can ever ask as human beings, which is, where is God to be found? The name of the baby answers that question. He is here with us. As the angel says to Joseph in chapter 1 in Matthew's Gospel, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet, which was, look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This is the heart of the message of Christmas. Not Mary and Joseph coming to Bethlehem, but heaven coming to earth. Heaven comes to earth in order that we on earth might come to heaven. So that the heavenly realm, the realm where God lives and rules, might again be the realm of humanity as well, where we might enjoy God for eternity in a new single heaven and earth. In the 1300s, a devout and brilliant woman named Catherine of Siena wrote a book called The Dialogue in which she imagines how God might explain the significance of the meeting of of heaven and earth that took place in Bethlehem. God says, I have made a bridge of my only begotten son. By Adam's sinful disobedience, the road was so broken up that no one could reach everlasting life. I had created men and women in my image and likeness so that they might have eternal life, sharing in my being and enjoying my supreme eternal tenderness and goodness. But because of their sin, they never reached this goal. For sin closed heaven and the door of my mercy. With sin came at once the flood of a stormy river that beat against them constantly with its waves, bringing weariness and troubles. You were all drowning because not one of you for all of your righteousness could reach eternal life. But I wanted to undo these great troubles of yours, so I gave you a bridge, my son, so that you could cross over the river, the stormy sea of this darksome life without being drowned. My only begotten son is a bridge, as you see that he is joining the most high with the most lowly. So the height stooped to the earth of your humanity, bridging the chasm between us and rebuilding the road. And why should he have made of himself a roadway? So that you might in truth come to the same joy as the angels. But my sons having made of himself a bridge for you could not bring you to life unless you make your way along that bridge. There is no other way to come to me. Part of the claim of Christmas and part of the point of Luke's telling of the birth of Jesus is to announce this, that heaven has come to earth in the person of Jesus. He is the one who opens the way. Have you walked across that bridge? And if not, what's keeping you? What's God saying to you? So now we come to the other important place in the passage, which is Bethlehem. Actually, Bethlehem and one other nearby place, as we'll discover. Luke chapter 2, beginning verse 4, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house on the line of David. So already by the time that Jesus was born, Bethlehem was a storied place with a thousand years of significant history for God's people. 
According to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, this is the town where the most important of Israel's kings, King David, was born. It was in the fields surrounding this town that David shepherded flocks of sheep when he was a young man. And it was here in this town that the prophet Samuel came and anointed David to be the next king. If they did that sort of thing back in the ancient world, you can be sure that there would have been a statue of David in the town square of Bethlehem. So while David was still king, Nathan came to him with a message from God. 2 Samuel chapter 7, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord God says, or the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Because of that association with David and his line, Bethlehem was not only important in looking back, it was also important in looking forward. It stood at the center of expectations concerning where the promised coming king, the Messiah, would be born. Hundreds of years after David died, God echoed this promise, this time through the prophet Micah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. If you are at all familiar with the New Testament, you know that when the wise men came out of the east to visit King Herod to learn where the new king had been born, this passage in Micah was the one that Herod's counselors opened to. So what do we know about Bethlehem at the time when Jesus was born? Well, until recently, almost nothing. I mentioned in my last message that some people have called into question the reliability of Luke as a historian. But again and again, new archaeological evidence corroborates the claims that Luke makes in his historical record. And that is true related to the city of Bethlehem as well. Some people have wondered whether or not this town of Bethlehem was just a made-up place. And that's because it wasn't until just 10 years ago that we had any confirmation outside of the Bible that the town of Bethlehem even existed. That was when archaeologists found an inscription referring to taxes that the town of Bethlehem was paying to the king on a piece of pottery that dated to the seven or 800s B.C., and it wasn't until just seven years ago that there was conclusive evidence that the town was inhabited during the time of Jesus. If you studied this at all, you have probably have learned that a number of people over the last 50 years have pointed out that there was pottery that was found from 500 years before the time of Jesus in the Bethlehem area and pottery that was found from 300 years after the time of Jesus, but nothing from his time period. But then in 2015, someone found a whole cache of pottery from the time of Jesus that was actually found right near the traditional birth site. So it turns out once again that Luke knew just what he was talking about when he gathered together his historical account. The word that's used to describe Bethlehem is a word that refers to the very smallest of towns. It means a hamlet or a village. 
Some archaeologists estimate that there were only about 300 people who lived in this village at the time when Jesus was born. This is a rendering of what Bethlehem might have looked like at the time of his birth. The Luke 2 passage gives us two really important clues about where in Bethlehem Jesus was born, and both of them are found in verse 7. First, it says that there was no guest room available for Mary and Joseph. For a long time, that word was translated room in the inn, but the word just means upper room or upstairs room. It's the same word that was used at the end of Luke's gospel to describe the room in Jerusalem where the Last Supper was held. Just like today, inns in ancient times were only found in larger cities. There were none in small towns. So finding a room in a tiny village like Bethlehem depended upon the hospitality of those who were residents there who might make one of the rooms available to uh, travelers. And no such room was available to Mary and Joseph by the time they got there because of the census that was uh, bringing other people there as well. We're also told that Jesus, uh, after he was born, was laid in a manger, which is a feed box for large animals. It's interesting that the passage doesn't actually mention anything about a stable, but that's a reasonable conclusion given that that's where you're likely to find a manger. Two things about stables in ancient Bethlehem. First, because the village was located in a hilly area that uh, had lots of caves in it, those caves were found to be a really convenient place to shelter animals. A number of years ago, I had the chance to go to Bethlehem and we went into a couple of those cave stables. They were musty and dark. The floors were covered with with years and years of accumulated sheep droppings and the ceilings were coated with soot from hundreds of years of campfires. And each one we went into had a manger whether carved into the rock floor or built of rough stones. There's actually a really high likelihood that Jesus was born in a cave, not just because there are so many of them around Bethlehem that were used as stables, but also because the very first mention of the birthplace of Jesus outside of the New Testament is found in the writings of Justin in about the year 150 AD. He went to visit the birthplace of Jesus and, we're, and he tells us in his writings that when he did, he was taken by local residents to see a cave that was revered as the birthplace of Jesus. There are, the next two mentions of Bethlehem are also ones that describe visiting the cave where Jesus was born. Because of its unique location on the slopes of cave-covered hills, Bethlehem had some unique architecture. Typically, homes just had a single floor, but it wasn't uncommon for the homes in Bethlehem to have two stories. The ground floor was often just a cave with an opening out, and that was the place where the family's animals would have been kept. And then on top of that, with an outside entrance, a second entrance would have been uh, the upper rooms where the family would have lived. So we don't know if Mary and Joseph were in a cave that was part of a house and more in the middle of this small village, or if they were in one of the freestanding caves that were found farther out in the fields near the base of the hills. But either way, it would have been a dark and dirty hole that would have provided needed shelter, but little else and certainly little in the way of comfort. Which brings us 
to the other really important place in this story. It's one that actually isn't mentioned by Luke, but it's one that would have been in the minds of anybody who heard the story and knew the area. Just three miles away from Bethlehem, easily seen from anywhere in the village on the horizon, looking like a landlocked Mont Saint-Michel, was one of the most luxurious of King Herod's 15 palaces. The Herodian was built on a natural mound on top of which slaves piled millions of buckets of additional rock and soil to make a man-made mountain to the glory of Herod. On top of that massive mound, Herod built a huge circular palace. The palace had thick double walls that were surrounded by four towers, the highest of which, holding Herod's extravagant living quarters and his guest rooms, was seven stories high. Inside the palace were a huge bath complex with cold and and lukewarm and hot baths, a peristyle garden with exotic trees and vines and plants, a full-size Roman theater, banquet rooms, administrative offices, lavish mosaics covered every floor, and around the base of the artificial mountain were gardens and pleasure grounds that included a pool that was half again as big as an Olympic-sized swimming pool. It held a million gallons of water, and it came complete with its own artificial colonnaded island in the middle. Now, this was no small feat because it was built in the middle, as was the Herodian uh, in its entirety. It was built in the middle of a barren wilderness, and every drop of water that was used in and around that palace had to be brought in from several miles away from the mountains. I got to climb up on top of the Herodian and explore the ruins, to go down and and look around at the base of the Herodian as well, and to go into the swimming pool. And it was just at the time when archaeologists were beginning to discover some of the uh, absolutely gorgeous uh, mosaic floors that had been laid outside surrounding some of these things as well. There really is not any way to communicate either the extravagance of what Herod built or the incredible gap, the chasm between the the stark simplicity of the caves in Bethlehem, just a stone's throw away where another king was being received, and these lavish quarters of Herod's. So another way to map the places that we come across in this passage is like this. How utterly unexpected that the highest would reach down and touch the lowest, that the the most high God would step from heaven to earth in order to raise us up to heaven. But how equally unexpected that when the coming king arrived, his bed was a feed trough. His palace was a filthy, soot-covered cave instead of the, the grandest and most opulent of halls just a couple of miles away. I'm convinced that it is not a coincidence that more than any other biblical writer, by far, Luke refers to God as God most high. God is the most high God. The Holy Spirit is the power of the most high. Jesus is the son of the most high. 
to God most high be glory, but on earth where the most high God has stepped, there is no glory at all. The most high has become the lowest. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Christ Jesus being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to cling to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Make no mistake, there was no oversight. Had he wanted to, God easily could have arranged for Jesus to have been born in the guest room in the Herodian, in those opulent and lavish halls. So what does it mean that Jesus, the Son of the Most High, occupied such a low place? And what does it mean for us, his followers, that he did? According to Luke, we too, as disciples of Jesus, are called the sons and daughters of the Most High. What does it mean that our King and Master, who directs us as his followers to pattern our lives after his, what does it mean that he was born for us that he was born into such a lowly place and continued to occupy a lowly place for the entirety of his life. What does it say to our pursuit of power or position or privilege? What does it say to our bent towards self-importance and entitlement? When we frame the Christian life in terms of rights and privileges, is it possible that we sons and daughters of the Most High God have misunderstood something? According to the scriptures, our call is to join Jesus in his downward and outward life. Once we begin to walk along it, we discover that the bridge, even as it leads us ever higher and closer to God, also leads us ever downward. In Luke 14, Jesus tells his disciples, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, a parable that he acted out his entire life. For even the son of the most high did not come to occupy the most high places. Mark 10, 45, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. Go back to Philippians chapter 2 and start back just a few verses earlier. And Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. According to Augustine, Writing in about the year 400, there are only two basic loves. There is a love of God that leads to a forgetfulness of self and a love of self that leads to a forgetfulness of God. The former glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from human beings, but the greatest glory of the other is God. The one lifts up its own head in its own glory, and the other says to its God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. The Most High God came to earth on a downward trajectory in a life not of self-importance, but of self-forgetfulness. Jesus models a downward life for us, and he calls us into one. 
Is his life the pattern of yours? And if not, what is keeping you? Would you pray with me?